Well, we're going to, as I said, start in chapter 9. Um, going to look at verses 1 through 25, um, or 28, I guess. So we are going to cover quite a bit of ground here. We did take a, a couple weeks there to look at the temple, as I said, and showed that the third temple that is talked about in our society so much, number one, the Bible says it's a heavenly temple, not an earthly one. Number two, that it's to be built by the Messiah, not built by man. And number three, that that temple is in us and that Yeshua, Jesus, was that temple. And so that has what so much of Hebrews has been leading up to was to point to that very thing, telling them, listen, this physical temple you guys are at is not the final answer. Yeshua is. And we need to kind of, what we've been doing is going through what Hebrews was talking about. This is kind of a list of some of those things that we've looked at. We've, he's been comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Well, in both of those covenants, if you recall, there was a priesthood. Had to be a priesthood. But the author of Hebrews was saying, this one that you guys, the ones that are ministering at the temple that you know right now, that isn't, those were a shadow of the real priest, the real priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. So we talked about that back in chapter 7. He also said that there's a new mediator in town. Not that high priest, but Yeshua has become the high priest. He also showed that the law, that in the Old, Old uh, Covenant there was a law, but he also showed very clearly that in the New Covenant that law remains but in a different way. It was taken from stone and put on the heart. It came to the spirit, and it's that spirit that allows us to obey that law. But clearly, the new covenant did not, and I repeat, did not get rid of the law. It only changed its location. Okay, We talked about that as well in chapter 8, I think. Um, and then, as I just said, we took two weeks to look at the temple. There had to be a temple in both the Old and the New Covenant as well. In the Old, it was the physical. In the New, it's us, it's Yeshua, it's heavenly, and uh, all of that. So, tonight, he's moving now into chapter 9, and he's going to look at the sacrifices. In both the Old and the New, there had to be a sacrifice. So all of these things have been laid out in the book of Hebrews. So, um, this is where it is headed here next. Now, just again, the framework doesn't change in the old or the new. It's, uh, these things are foundational for both of them, whether it be the old or the new. It's just how you look at it and how they've been changed through the Messiah. Um, in both covenants... Before we get too far, the sacrifice, I want you to understand, needed to be clean. It needed to be without blemish. We've talked about this at Passover, how the priest would go out to make sure that that lamb had no defect on it. You weren't allowed to bring animals that had defects to the temple. Okay? And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, first of all, you know, Scripture says you wouldn't bring that to your governor. You know, if you were going to go meet the president, you're not going to give him your cucumbers that are wilted or whatever the case might be. You're going to bring the best. And 
we know that in the new covenant, that is exactly what Yeshua is. He is the lamb without blemish. He is perfect, sinless, and therefore an acceptable sacrifice. So what we're going to show you, though, is there's one more necessary thing in bringing a sacrifice in both covenants. And one of the most important things of all, there had to be blood. In Leviticus 17.11, under the Old Covenant, this is what it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The emergent church, we don't hear a lot about that today because it seems like every, I don't know, 10 years a new one comes about. Uh, it used to be seeker-sensitive church. Don't really hear that anymore, although the term does apply. It kind of moved to the emergent church. And what one of the, the things that many of those emergent pastors were teaching is that the blood of Jesus had no power. So that song, you know, that good old hymn, Nothing But the Blood, would never be sung there because Jesus' blood has no power. Now that's kind of moved a little bit to where we see some of these other more, um, I, I don't know what to call them, but the charismatic still, but not all charismatics believe this, but maybe more of the word of faith. Some of them we have this little God idea where we are gods, that Jesus, when he became man, he set his divinity aside. And they'll say, this is why he says, no one knows the day or the hour except the Father, not even the Son. I don't even know when the, the, the day or the hour is coming. And so he set aside his divinity to do that. And so we now also, because we have Christ in us, we become these little gods like Jesus. You are just like Jesus. You can do the same miracles. You can do everything. Well, I think that's a heresy. Well, I don't think. I know that's a heresy. Okay? But it's kind of, it keeps transforming. Like I said, this is what happens in uh, Christianity when, when there isn't a foundation and when we're not using the scriptures fully. And um, this is a, a big deal. Blood was vital in the Old Covenant. It even says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Remember we talked about this in some other study. I don't remember which. Um, and we are going to look at this again, and I think soon, at some point. But in Acts chapter 15, we see the Gentiles have now been welcomed into the church in Acts chapter 10 through Peter lowering the pigs in the blanket. Okay, That had nothing to do with food. Nothing to do with food. As a matter of fact, if Jesus was teaching that we could eat unclean food, why was Peter so shocked? No, Lord, never. I've never let anything unclean touch my lips. But this is what we hear. Anytime we talk about clean and unclean things, we well, God got rid of that. Remember Acts chapter 10? He, there were all these pigs coming down and all of that. Well, God said, get up and eat. Well, Peter's like, no. Well, then we see Cornelius send some messengers to get Peter. And Peter then realizes, ah, I get the vision. I get what he was telling me. 
God was telling me not to call the Gentiles unclean because a Jew viewed them as unclean. So not only does Peter himself tell us the meaning of his vision in chapter 10, he also goes and he repeats it in chapter 15. He tells them the dream and he even says, God was telling me Gentiles are not unclean. So nothing to do with food. Then in Acts chapter 15, after they hash all of this stuff out, what do we see happening? They say, of all the things that we need to tell the new believers, it is this. Moses is going to be read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So they're going to get the law, in essence, is what it's saying. But you tell them to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. You tell them to not eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat food with, you know, strangled. And abstain from sexual immorality. Now, I have yet to see any pastor when a new believer comes into their church, say, hey, we're so glad you're here. Here's some of the most important things you can do is don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't, you know, be sexually immoral. Have you ever heard a pastor give you that advice? Never. And yet this is the very thing that Acts chapter 15 says is one of the most important things. So much important. It's even repeated again, I think, in chapter 21, maybe even in chapter 18 again. The same things. Now, I'm not going to get into this tonight, but I would really encourage you, go listen to Daniel Joseph's message he put out last Thursday on the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, part 11. Okay, Corner Fringe Ministry, Daniel Joseph, Part 11. And he's going to connect some of these things, why this is important to what's going on with this COVID-19 right now and possibly with this virus, the, the va- mad- mandatory vaccine. And it all comes back to what we have been talking about the last two weeks. What's the temple? You are. There can be nothing unholy and impure in the temple. God resides in us and therefore... There can be nothing unclean in your temple. The life of the creature is in the blood. And that word life is nephesh in Hebrew. It literally means and is translated as such in many cases, the soul. The soul of a creature is in its blood. This is why Satanists drink blood. Okay, They, They believe that they are taking the personality, the characteristics of that animal, that baby, that person in themselves. Well, I'm going to make this full circle. The life is in the blood. And that's kind of what I was saying here is this. In 1 Corinthians 6, when it talks about sexual immorality, it says all other sins a man commits are outside of the body. But the sin of sexual immorality is a sin against the body. When you have sexual relations with somebody, you become one person. The two become one. There is a unity that is there, that is very important. A unity of the temple. When he says, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, what do you see? An idol, he says, is an idol anything? No, it's not. But when you go do that, you are communing with that idol. Okay? And like I said, uh, Daniel Joseph will talk a little bit about this too, but bottom line is, is that is a fellowship 
a unity that takes place. You go look up table in scripture, you are never invited to a table of somebody that did not accept you as a, a unity, a unit, one, a family. This is why a Jew would never eat with a Gentile before Acts chapter 15. Well, or 10 is the first time when Peter did it. Jews would never do that. Because you're bringing something unholy and uniting it, and there's a, a, a desecration of the temple. And the same thing is for the blood. The scripture says we are reserved for one man's blood. Yeshua, Jesus, right? Go read John chapter 6. The whole thing. It's such a hard concept that even many of his own disciples left him. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like, we don't get this. This is a hard teaching. Well, the point is, is that there's a unity these saintness have corrupted that. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going Catholic on you here either in case your minds are going that direction. But what I'm saying is that there is a unity aspect to every one of these, something that is to protect the temple. So in, 1 Corinthians, or in Acts chapter 15, what those things are saying is this. Above all else, guard your temple. So that's kind of putting the teeth in what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Guard your temple. You need to be watching what you're putting in to your temple. So anyway, this though is why Jesus had to die. People will say, well, why didn't he just come and say, you know, I forgive you? He couldn't because sin in the spiritual realm has a, a cost. The wages of sin is death. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There had to be blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to see that later in this chapter. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So, whether it is old or new, blood is vital. And what I've been saying here you can kind of see that the new doesn't just throw away the old. They are connected, it's just in a different way. Yeshua is fulfilling it. Okay? But a lot of people don't look at the, the old and the new this way. They look at them as two completely separate things. The old is gone, the new has come, and all of these things kind of get thrown away. But yet you see that every bit of that old covenant still remains just in a different form under Yeshua. So anyway, um, breaking into Hebrews 9 here, we're going to see the, the juxtaposition of the Old and the New Covenant here. So verse 1 says, Then indeed, even the first covenant, the Old, had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. The earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So again, that word first that I highlighted there, it's important because there's a pattern in the Bible with firsts. 
I think that's why he doesn't call it the old here right away. Because the first does not receive the glory that the second does. The second, throughout Scripture, is the one that receives the glory. What I mean by that is Jacob and Esau. Okay, Esau was the oldest, but the second gets the glory. Ishmael and Isaac, same thing, right? Um, how about even look at Jesus' first coming to his second coming? That the first time he came as a suffering servant, the, you know, uh, the, the son of Joseph, Ben Yosef, but... The second time he's coming as Ben David, the son of David, the ruling king. Well, and yeah, David was the second king. You have Saul and then David. Saul was rejected. David. There are a lot of examples that, like I said, it's a pattern that is throughout. And it is no different with the covenant. The first does not receive the glory. The second one does. We also see in the tabernacle, he's starting to lay this out. For the tabernacle or the temple, remember the tabernacle was the one that was the temporary one that moved around in the wilderness. Then it was there in Shiloh for a little bit until David built the temple or started building things and, you know, for Solomon there. But bottom line is that even that, the second one was greater. And not only that, but we have the first room and the second room, and the second room is greater in that as well. And so here he says, the tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread. So what's this table? Well, you had three things in the uh, holy place. And so here I have pictured the, the temple, the tabernacle would be very similar, just not quite as grandiose. But bottom line, you had an outer court. The whole thing was kind of enclosed. Then you had an outer court area. Then you went in to the building part of it. And in the building part of it, the first part was called the holy place. And at the holy place, what we see is you had three main pieces of furniture. And it's not as easy to see here as it is in some of the, the, the tabernacle. But you had on your right side the table of showbread. In front of you, you had the Ark of the Covenant. Now, by the, the table of showbread was what had 12 loaves of bread on it, one for each tribe of Israel. That was to be changed on every Sabbath. Every week, the bread was changed. The altar of incense was directly in front. Right behind it was a curtain. And when you went into the, through the curtain... The most holy place was on the other side. Now, by the way, there's no indication there was any door or way to open that curtain. It was one piece. And just a little side note, the Jews basically say that they were almost like, remember Philip, how Philip was like with the Ethiopian eunuch and then he wasn't? That's how it seemed that some people say they got behind that curtain. Because there was no tear in it. There was nothing and it was really, really heavy and really, really thick. And so some say, because you only got to go into that second part one day a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And only one person went in, the high priest. 
And I mean, I could talk on this for hours as well. Remember when Yeshua dies, that curtain is torn, giving access into the part that nobody had access to. And now we have access, because of Yeshua, into the most holy place. I mean, I love the tabernacle. Like I said, I'd love to just take one time just to talk about that. But the bottom line then on the left side of you, again, showbread, altar of incense, on the left was the menorah, the lampstand. And all of these things are a picture of Yeshua. The lampstand is the word of God. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Okay, uh, Jesus is the word of God. He is the light of the world. All of those kind of things. The spirit, the oil that's used. Altar of incense. What's that? Prayer. The Bible tells us these things. So I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, Scripture is interpreting this for us. In Revelation 9, or I don't know what chapter it is, but in Revelation, we see the altar of incense, and it says that the smoke is going up, and it is the prayers of the saints. And so there's a lot of other verses that we can kind of talk about that connect this to prayer. But again, that's talking about the tabernacle. I don't have time to get into that tonight either. Just the prayers of the saints. In, in chapter, in the fifth seal, we see the martyrs are before the altar, and they're saying, how long, O Lord, until you come and avenge our blood? So that might be what you're thinking of there. So, it seems, I'd have to go look, but it seems like it's those who came out of the tribulation, but I could be wrong. I, I know... All I know is that they're martyrs, but I'm not 100% sure if it says those that came out of the tribulation or not. So uh, the table of showbread is basically the bread. Again, Yeshua, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Okay, John 6, again, talks about all of that as well. So we see Yeshua in all parts. And um, again, who's the mediator that... You know, we pray to Yeshua. Catholics pray to all these other saints and, and Mary. But we don't do that because we have, as Timothy says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. Okay? He's the one that we pray to and him only. Now, uh, with that said, you know, God the Father, Son, one in three, but you know what I mean. So this gives you just some indication. But when he's talking about this first... This first room, he says, these were the things that were in it. It goes on here in verse 3 then. And behind the second veil, okay, right behind the altar of incense, is this really thick one that I've been talking about, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or sometimes the most holy place, which, by the way, when the Bible says that we are the temple, you are the temple, the word that's used is the one for the most holy holy place. So when he says you're the temple, he's not talking about the holy place. He's talking about the second, the most holy place. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant. Now here's the interesting aspect to this. Here he puts the golden censer, which is the the altar of incense, in the second place. Go read in the Old Testament. It's in the holy place, not the most holy place. But here, it's behind that veil. 
It's in the most holy place. Um, and he goes on and he says, uh, the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Kind of like what I just said. I would love to just talk about the tabernacle for you, and I will sometime if you want. But he's saying we don't have time to get into all these details. I wish I could have heard his sermon on the tabernacle. That would have been amazing. But for now, what I can focus on is this. Note that there were three things in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of God's mercy seat or God's throne. The cherub are on top. You'll never see God's throne without the cherub. They're always at his mercy seat, his throne. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, God put cherub so that they couldn't get into the garden because that's where God walked with them. That was God's throne, you might say. Water goes out from the throne, the middle of the garden. Anyway, those three things that we're seeing in here, first of all, the manna. Remember in the wilderness, they didn't have food, so God gives them manna. Manna just meant, what is it? And this manna, we see, though, is Yeshua. How do I know that? Because John tells me that. Again, we don't have time to get into it, but I think, I think it's John chapter 6, where he says, your forefathers in the desert, they ate manna. And he says, basically, that was Christ. They ate Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says that they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so, so scriptures are telling us this. So we see that Yeshua is the manna that was in God's throne. We see the rod that budded. Remember, uh, some of the other leaders of the 12 tribes were kind of complaining against Aaron and saying, hey, you know, what gives you to, you know, and God says, all right, everybody, want the leader of each tribe, bring me your staff. And so they put him in before the Ark of the Covenant. And in the morning, everybody's staff is still a staff except for Aaron's, which had budded and blossomed and had almonds on it. And so that was kept in the presence. Now, these almonds and that is a picture of the Spirit of God as well. I'm not going to give you all the verses that would connect that. And then you had the tablets, the tablets of the testimony or the, the Ten Commandments, we would say, written on stone. They were kept there. We typically think of that as God the Father. And so there's a picture of a trinity within the, the, the throne of God there. Um. I think that's probably all I better talk about here on this. Like, like I said, I would love to go in, but here's just a better visual then. This is the tabernacle. You can see the outer court. Then the first court, uh, you see the priest standing there by the altar of show, the table of showbread. Then behind him to his left is the altar of incense. And then the menorah behind him. Then there was the big curtain. And behind that curtain 
which you can see here just on the, the right side, was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was kind of the layout of it. Are those pillars right there? Um, I think just on the ends, and then that curtain went all the way across. So, verse 5 of Hebrews, continuing, it says this, And above it, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where the cherub were, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I guess we, we looked at that, but there's just a better picture then. When the priest would go into the altar uh, to the, on the Day of Atonement, he took incense with him. And I think that's also why we see that when Yeshua dies, the curtain is tore, and now what do we see inside the most holy place that was not there under the old covenant? The incense. Once a year, the high priest took it in. But now, Yeshua, he dies once for all, and it's going to remain in the most holy place. That's not insignificant. That means when we are praying, those prayers, Yeshua has taken right to the throne, to the foot of God right, right away. And so that there's, that's important. Our prayers are vital. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So every morning, the, the priest would trim the wicks in the, on the menorah. They would take care of the incense that had to keep, you know, they kept that burning all the time. And then on the Sabbath, they would change the bread out. But that was a daily thing. This other part, I mean, can you imagine not going into your house for a year? How dusty and just, you know, things would fall apart. But that didn't seem to be the case with this because God was taking care of it. So that was only entered, as I said, on the Day of Atonement. Taking in, as I said, two things, incense and blood. So, never without blood could you even come near the throne of God. And you think you can get to heaven, the throne of God, without going through the sacrifice of Yeshua? Not a chance. This is why it says in Scripture that there is only one way that you can get to heaven. Nobody gets to heaven unless they go through Jesus, Yeshua. Because he was the blood, he was the perfect sacrifice, he was the high priest, he is all of it. And you can't get there without it. So to say that Jesus never died on the cross or didn't have to die on the cross, a lot of those emergent people that I was saying before said the reason he died was simply to give an example for us of how we are to live sacrificially for one another. Wrong. The reason he died 
was because there would be no forgiveness without it. And you couldn't get to heaven without Him and that blood, that sacrifice. I don't care how well you obey those commands, which I don't, even if you think you're doing really well on them, you fail miserably. That's not what gets you in. It is the blood of Christ only. So, by the way, the, one of the reasons he took the incense in with him as well is the, the high priest and that smoke would also cover the, the, uh, the ark. It was kind of cloudy, which is kind of interesting as well because, I don't know, I think it's Corinthians that says, we now see dimly, but then we're going to see clearly. But that was part of it, was to kind of be dimmed and to protect the priest from the presence of God because God would meet with them above the Ark of the Covenant there on that day. Um, it was also kind of the picture of the cloud. The cloud would you know, lead them throughout. That cloud was a, a picture of God's presence as well. So... Um, the other thing that's different here too, just to kind of remind you, we talked about this before, but the priest, when he went into the most holy place, prior to doing that, that blood he, offer, he also offered for himself because he had to make sure his temple was pure and clean before he went into the presence of God. Today, the church does very little in expecting us to make sure that our temple is clean. It's just all about, hey, we've been forgiven, now let's go live life, and when Jesus comes back, you know, everything's going to be quick and easy and whatever. No. All are welcome. Yeah, yeah, all are welcome. It doesn't matter what you're doing. That is not how the Bible portrays people entering into the presence of Christ. All are welcome. But there are requirements before you come into his presence. So... Um, the Old Testament, the Torah, the, the, says that the blood was put in, in the front of the altar, of uh, the, the mercy seat, in front of it, and then on the mercy seat as well. And it was to be sprinkled seven times. Now it's interesting, the Mishnah, which is again a commentary on the Bible in the Talmud, talks about how they were to do this and they would use the hyssop branch, and there's all kinds of spiritual significance to that, obviously, even with Jesus on the cross and the hyssop being handed to him and so on. But the hyssop, they did that at Passover to put the blood on the doorposts. But this hyssop, they say they would like snap it like a whip. And so you can imagine the blood and just, who was it? I don't know who I was talking to here, just I think maybe Noah on Tuesday or Wednesday just how awful this place must have smelled. They're butchering. They're butchering. It's a slaughterhouse out there. You're taking blood and throwing. I do that. I want to wipe it up. But that's not what was going on here. And there is no indication, and I don't know anything about this. I'm just, this is my, my thought. There's no indication that this was dirty, but that that altar was clean. 
You know, I don't know what happened to that blood afterwards, but you'd think year after year after year just taking and throwing blood on this thing, splattering blood everywhere, it would be a disgusting, you know, place to be. But there's no indication that that's the case. So, I don't know, just, you know, thoughts. But the other picture of that that they do is this whipping. They even describe it as a whip. What does that remind you of? Yes, the sacrifice, the blood being poured out, and yet this is what was happening as they were whipping Yeshua, whipping our sacrifice, his blood being basically shed for us. Um, like I said, this tabernacle, I love. I could talk for three, four weeks on this. I'm not going to get into the goats, too. There's all that significance of the two goats, the scapegoat. We will talk about that on when we have our festival here, Tabernacles. Uh, before Tabernacles, we have Day of Atonement. I'll talk about that on the Day of Atonement, these two goats. It's amazing, and that's a picture as well of Barabbas, I believe, um, that there were two goats. One was to be sacrificed, one was taken to the wilderness. What do we see in the New Testament with Yeshua? We see there are two. Pilate says, which one do you want me to let go? Which one goes to the cross? Which one gets freed? Barabbas is set free. We never hear of him again. Yeshua, the sacrificial one, he uh, goes to the cross. And there's lots of other details that connect that. But Including the meaning of the name Barabbas? Yes, son of, son of the Father, yep, yep. Barabbas is even son of the Father, son of God, you could say. And uh, the whole idea of Barabbas too, or the scapegoat, the wilderness one being taken out, was so that the sins would never return to you. And that's kind of the whole idea. It was, it was named Azazel, which is the name of a wilderness demon god, like a fallen angel. That's what the Jews call it. If you even Google Azazel, that's what you're going to find. And this is what the Bible calls that scapegoat. And Barabbas seems to be this. He goes back to, the, to his father, the devil, in a sense. The sins go back to where they belong. So, But anyway, um, verse 8, we're going to continue here. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. By the way, this verse, believe it or not, is one of those that is used for us to say, oh yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the old covenant stuff, that's all done and away with. And so, you see, he says that we're not to be concerned with food and drinks, various washings. You can eat anything you want. But you've got to take this in context. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the Day of Atonement. This is the context. And on the Day of Atonement, there are foods and drinks and washings that have to take place. This has nothing to do with what you eat and drink. This has nothing to do with your 
lifestyle today. This has everything to do with what he's talking about, and that is the Day of Atonement. The him who performed, obviously here is the high priest. Okay, that's the, where was that, verse um, 9. Him who performed the service, perfect in regard to the conscience. What that means is they were so conscientious about performing this service just right. Everything had to be perfect. And there was a lot of steps. I can't remember if it was like over a hundred times maybe that the name Yahweh is used on this day and they made many trips back and forth. And uh, like I said, we'll talk more about it later. But um, all these rules and they were very conscientious about it. Concerned only with foods, fleshly ordinances. There were not just food rules for the Day of Atonement, but fleshly ordinances. Any other day, this priest had eight different garments on. We'll talk about that later too. But on the Day of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, he only wore white. White linen, one thing. And that's what he's talking about, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So every time the Day of Atonement rolled around, they were wearing certain clothes, certain sacrifices, certain washings, certain everything. They were very conscientious about it. But the point is, is that this is all take, talking about the high priest, not you but the high priest. And the Mishnah, which I'm not going to get into very much, but I'm going to just give you a little bit so that you know I'm not making this stuff up, talks about these washings. Okay, again, what's the Mishnah? The commentary of Scripture from the, in the Talmud. Here it says this. Five acts of immersion and ten acts of sanctification of the hands and feet. So more ordinances of the flesh does the high priest carry out on that day, the Day of Atonement? So just to give you just the tiniest picture of it. Verse 10 says, Concerned only with foods and drinks, uh, the ones that we just read here, but various washings, fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. This statement is important because it's leading us to the next verse, verse 11 showing us that what brings Reformation? What was going to bring the change? Well, the answer is Yeshua. But, the high priest, he did all of these things on the Day of Atonement, but, but now, Christ came as high priest. Of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Again, not earthly, not made by men, unlike the third temple that everybody talks about in the churches today. So, this is that where that final juxtaposition comes about. He's been talking about Yom Kippur, he's been talking about the old, but now we have the new. And it is eternal, and it is final, he was sacrificed once for all. It was not daily. It's now done. It's not in part. It's now complete. And so verse 12 continues and says, 
not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, eternal, final. This is the difference. The superiority of Christ. Now, why would anybody ever want to go back to the old when this is so much better, so much far superior? The job of the high priest was to intercede for the people and now we see this is what Yeshua does for us. He intercedes for us. He always lives to intercede for the saints, it says. So, this is supposed to give us assurance. Keep in mind, when Paul is reading this, or when he's writing this, the physical temple was still in effect. There are high priests ready to do all of these sacrifices. They're wearing, everybody's very familiar because you can just go walk to Jerusalem and there it is. And he's saying, no, that's obsolete. This is new. You can imagine how hard it would be for them to accept this when the physical is standing right there. But understanding this, I mean, you can, Hebrews, I believe, is one of the most important books in the New Testament in the Bible, period. Because this is trying to explain the new covenant. And, I mean, this is, this is gold here, this book. Hebrews 9, verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I'm just going to stop there first before we continue. The blood of those animals couldn't take away the conscience of that high priest. They had to do it, and they were so conscientious that they had to do everything just right, or else they were afraid they were going to die. And now he's saying, how much more now the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Yeshua, should cleanse us from a guilty conscience? Do we have record of any high priests like, doing it wrong and dying? None. Never happened. None. You, you guys have probably heard about the rope that was tied to the high priest's leg. In case they would die, they could pull him out. Zachariah yeah. was mute, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as far as dying, no. And that whole rope thing, that's not in the scriptures or in the Talmud. That's a, I don't know where it got started. The point being is that they took this so seriously and were so conscious stricken by everything that had to be done. Now, guys, us in the New Testament... We have to understand this gives us assurance as well. That does not mean that we shouldn't be very diligent to try to obey God's commands. But if we fail, because you will fail, we have no fear of death when we are under Yeshua. Imagine if Christ had not died. And imagine if his blood had not covered us. I should be petrified if that is not true. I should be absolutely petrified because of my sins. 
if I was a Jew who did not believe in, in Yeshua as Messiah, I would be petrified because you can't make these sacrifices. How can I be forgiven? And so this is a big deal for us to know that our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west, that we now can have a clear conscience. And there are those people out there who don't want to come to church because they think, you don't know what I've done. I'm too bad. God can't forgive me. That is a lie from the pit of hell and the devil himself because Scripture is clear that he cleanses you from a guilty conscience. It does not matter what your past is. He has made a way for you. It doesn't get more important than that. I don't know, just that identity change... I don't know if you've ever seen my New Creations in Christ message, but it's pretty old. I, I um, uh, what was it? Bill Gillum, a book called What God Wishes Christians Knew About Christianity. That, went, that one changed my life. Just as much as understanding the Hebrew connections to Scripture. Because it really takes this point and drives it home in ways that it makes you realize what God has done for you. Because how many times have you guys gone and done some sin and you continue to feel guilty about it? Now, I'm not saying that's all bad. I, I still do that too. But to remain there, to be able to confess your sin and say, that guilt is good because it makes you confess that sin. But after you've confessed that sin and you continue to beat yourself up, what you're saying is this, God, thank you for forgiving me, but I'm not good enough. I'm still not good enough. And it's like, God has made you good enough. Well, I like that definition in that book about a, not a, we're sheep acting like a goat, yeah. not a goat that has become a sheep. Yeah. Or however it's said. You know how it's said. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're sheep that act like goats. But when Jesus comes, you can't be a sheep and a goat. It's impossible for you to be both. And I grew up with this whole theology of, well, I'm a saint and a sinner. I understand what they're trying to say, but it's also dangerous because if I'm a saint and a sinner, it's never, what Jesus did is never good enough. Okay, I am a sheep a that saint. sometimes acts like a goat or a saint that sins. But when I sin, God is not condemning me. Because my sin has been cast out. He sees Yeshua if I truly have a relationship with, with Yeshua. If I don't, I'm a goat that thinks I'm a sheep. <laughs> it, it's kind of the, the fine line of like humility that you, you've been forgiven, but you have to be mindful of your sinful ways so that you don't fall into that again. And it's that fine line of remembering that, that I can be sinful if I let myself go. Yeah. But I'm not a sinner. Yes. And noun. Yes. You're a sinner verb, but not a sinner noun. God has changed your identity. And this is why he says, is it chapter 3 in Corinthians, that we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. A new creation. And this is what the new covenant has done for us. Again... To be a new creation, however, that old is still there. It's just now been put in our heart.
hearts. That, that law has been put in our spirits. And it's been written in us. So the law has not been taken away. And that's kind of what a lot of many in the church would say that it has. And it has not. So it is, there's such a fine line. And it's just kind of people can go so far one way or the other with it. But we have to let the scriptures kind of do it. Not how we feel. And not even what we've been taught from church. But what the scriptures teach. So, so the law is in everybody's hearts. According to Romans chapter 2, I think verse 15. Yep. Yep. And their conscience will bear witness against them on the day of judgment, according to Romans. Yeah, the idea of morality, there is no explanation for morality outside of God's word. Evolutionists would love to borrow from God's word and, and think that they can practice moral principles. But that's a Christian foundation. They don't understand it because they'll challenge you and say morality is something that a majority of the people will agree upon. Well, then you can just say, well, then, you know, Nazi Germany was a moral country. They all agree. Because they, could, they came and, and agreed that this is okay to, to kill the Jews. Okay? Or others will say that morality is something that... Um, we do because it makes us feel good naturally and so it evolved that way because well this makes me feel good to help you and so felt good we'll just continue to do more of it so therefore if there's somebody who really enjoys murdering people and eating them you know who's to say that they're immoral yeah so anyway um i just think this is so huge um and i don't think the church understands the the depth of what it means to be a new creation in Christ, what it means to cleanse your conscience. Um, verse 15, And for this reason, he is the mediator, Yeshua is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That word inheritance is a big deal as well. Because to a Jew, that word, that, that's, that's one of those trigger phrases for a Jew. Inheritance, that's their whole life was revolving around the inheritance of the promised land. Even today in Israel, you ask a Jew why, you know, the Palestinians say, hey, we were here first. No, this is our inheritance. God gave us this land. And so inheritance is a, that's not a small word here. For us, it may not connect, but let me tell you, it did with these readers here. Because this is what they were waiting for. They were waiting for their inheritance. And we need to be looking for it too. It's kind of like what we've talked about in past weeks. You know, everybody's waiting for the Lord to come back, and then we see signs of him coming back, and it's like, oh no. We should be standing up and saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, praying, excited. You know, pray to speed his coming. Because there's an inheritance that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Because what you have now in the material, temporal inheritance is not home. The eternal inheritance is where our eyes 
have to be kept. I've used this example before. My brother Steve here, uh, I remember years ago him saying he wanted to go put little sticky tabs on things all over the house to be burned, to be burned, to be burned, to remind us that this doesn't matter. Well, I, I think everybody, well, I think pretty much, I mean, I, I can't say everybody, but I know I do. Yeah. And so to focus on our true inheritance, that's an important thing. Matthew 25, verse 34, just to kind of jump on this inheritance stuff a little bit. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay, this is what Yeshua has accomplished. So don't let the devil steal that truth from you. Okay, that you're no good, or that this is your inheritance. Um, you know, when Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. That's to be heavenly minded. Genesis 17, 7 builds on this. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So you can see the promised land to the Jew, that was like the end of all. I mean, that was amazing. But what he's saying is that wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. Yeshua is the everlasting promise. His possession. I go and prepare a place for you. This is just a picture of it. So, again, this part in Hebrews would resonate with a Jew um, because they were all about their inheritance, their their possession. Um Anyway, uh, I'm trying to remember. There was something I just was studying, and it was just so... I had never seen that before in regards to... Oh, I know what it was. And maybe I said it last week. I don't remember. But do you remember in Acts, after Pentecost, they go and they sell all their land and possessions, and everybody had what they needed. And I never had put it in that connection before, but... We always look at it as, oh, okay, they were selling, they are helping everybody out. But you have to understand, they got this. They figured that out. They figured Hebrews out. Because they're selling their land. In Torah, you didn't get rid of the land. You know, it's certainly not outside of your family or anything like that. Here they're giving up their inheritance. Why? Because they realize this isn't the inheritance. Yeshua and the everlasting possession of heaven was their inheritance. And that really struck me because I can't tell you how many people have come and talked to me because of, you know, the world. The world ending here, it seems, in the near future. How many people have come and one of their biggest concerns is the material possessions. Our eyes are to be up there. In those New Testament Christians in Acts, that's not a small thing for them to sell 
their possessions. We're not just talking about selling your bike and your, it says their land and their houses. Ezekiel 47, 21 says this, Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. Notice who else has that inheritance here. The strangers who live among you. Guys, that's us, Gentiles. This was a prophetic picture of saying, listen, the Gentiles are going to be welcomed in as well. Now, it was Logan. I was talking to Logan somehow this week, and I don't remember what it was. We watched something, and I said one of the foundational problems with so many bad theologies today is this. Dual covenant theology. That there is a covenant for the Jew, and there is a covenant for the Gentile. You cannot prove this scripturally. I can prove scripturally that we have been grafted into their covenant. We have become spiritual Israel. And this is what this is talking about. We are the strangers that live among them. But anyway, it goes on and it says, They shall be to you as native-born among the children of Israel. That's us again. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. So, clearly, this is not Yeshua, not the physical land, or else Palestine should have been Israel. Okay, what I'm saying is, is that he's not talking about the physical, he's talking about the spiritual, and that our inheritance is not Jerusalem. At least, our inheritance is not Hagar. Galatians 4, the Jerusalem that is physical. Our inheritance is Sarah, the heavenly Jerusalem, as Galatians 4 talks about. All right, Acts 26, 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So just again, Gentiles are partakers of this inheritance, the new covenant, um, an inheritance among Israel. So again, we don't replace Israel, we join them. And that's very important. Going on to verse 16 here, we're just about done. I'm going long tonight. It says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it is no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So, the last will and testament has power only when one dies. Therefore, Yeshua had to die or else you don't receive the inheritance. The Israelites were already in the promised land, showing that was not the inheritance. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Can you imagine? Boy, that would clear out a church in a hurry, wouldn't it? <laughs> Saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, 
and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins. Yeah, but we see it even in Revelation. We see that it's like we talked about on our study with the white clothing, that there is the, the gospel. Everybody thinks the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and that's it. No, the gospel is twofold. You look, there's, there's tons of verses that I could give you that has an if involved with this. So... There's so many of these, I can't give you all, I'm just going to give you this one. In Revelation, we see that the, the saints, the white robes that on the Day of Atonement the high priest was wearing stood for the purity, the holiness of that one man because it was a picture of Christ. So in Revelation chapter 19, the saints are given white robes which are the righteous acts of the saints. So, what is it? Our acts, our deeds, our works. But it also says in Revelation that our robes are made white by the blood of the Lamb. Our works without that blood of the Lamb would not be a white robe. The white robe washed in blood without the works isn't white either. Both are necessary. You, to have white robes, you have to have the blood of Christ and the deeds. This is what James is saying, faith without works is dead. And we have preached a cheap grace gospel in the churches that all you do is just believe, say, yeah, I, I believe there is a God in heaven. I believe he created me. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Good, now I'm going to go live like hell and hope to get heaven. That is not the gospel. Those are the ones that are, are deceived. And this is why Matthew talks about those who are going to go before the Lord. Lord, we perform miracles in your name. Yeah, you also were you know, partying and doing drugs and whatever. You know, I don't know. But he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Yeah. And what do you say to the man who died alongside Jesus on the cross who, as far as we know, didn't really have any works or faith before that? That is his work. His work was, he did. He testified. He testified and he says, you know, I'm not, no, you guys be quiet. You know, we deserve to be up here. That was a confession of sins and, and that is a work. And so I'm not saying that it is your work that makes you righteous. What I'm saying is it's the blood of Christ that makes you righteous. But if you have the blood of Christ and you don't have works, you've lied to yourself that you're a believer. That's what James is talking about. That's what the New Testament is filled with. And so works, your white robe without the blood is a dirty robe. It will not get you to heaven. You could be the best looking Christian, acting Christian, whatever. You're never getting to heaven without the blood of Jesus. The Catholic doctrine would be uh, faith plus works equals salvation. But the biblical doctrine is saying faith equals salvation plus works. All right, I'm going to keep going here because I'm really getting late and I'm sure the kids are probably going crazy over there.
Verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Again, contrasting the old and the new. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Again, earthly versus heavenly for the third temple as well that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Okay? He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Not hinder sin, not you know, sweep it under the rug, put it away. Once, not year after year. And it says he sacrificed himself. So that means there's not another work that needs to be done to attain salvation, which fits very well into your mathematical equation. They have faith plus works to attain or equal salvation. No. No work can be done to attain salvation. Faith equals salvation plus those works. The salvation is there, but you have to have the works. So, um, two things are certain here. Death and judgment. You will die and you will be judged. And if you are not judged by Yeshua... His blood, when he looks at you, that's what he sees. You will be judged by your works. And I can guarantee you they will not be good enough. This is why we repent of our sins, call on Jesus, and we turn and we stop living. And this is what, we stop living ungodly. This is why I think it's important that we look at some of these things that maybe the church has ignored for so many years. Because we should be protecting our temple. We should be saying, God, I want to be holy, I want to be pure, and I want to please you because of what you have done for me. Not so that I can earn my salvation, but because I want to. You put your spirit in me, and my spirit is saying, I want to love you, I want to, I want to obey, I want to follow. So it is appointed to men to die once. But after that... After this, the judgment. Are you ready? That's kind of where he's kind of leaving you here outside of this last verse. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time. All this time he's been going about the first, the first, the first. And he's now saying, see, he's the second. He's comparing the first and the second temple and now his first and the second coming. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The first time he came to take on our sin. He won't do that a second time. The first time he came as a lamb, that sacrificial animal. The second time he's coming as a lion. Okay, Wrath for the ungodly. Now, we do see in Revelation he's described as a lamb, one who looks as a lamb who had been slain, past tense. So, but you know what I'm saying here. 
So, all right, with that, let's close.